Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Their husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son called his name Jesus. Father, as we reflect on the name of the Savior, we pray that you would give us the grace to call upon his name, that you would speak to us through these words, that you would enliven our hearts, and that you would draw us to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, now that we're well and truly out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament and into the Gospels, it would be nice to have a little bit of an orientation. There are, of course, four Gospels, but the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have a connectedness. They're a little bit different from John. As I mentioned last week, John has a different organizational structure. He does things more thematically, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a more let's say, narrative focus, and also a lot of commonality between one another, which is why when you're reading in the Gospel of Matthew, if you check your cross-references, you'll often find the same story uh, connected in Luke or in Mark, where you'll see similar kind of things going on. We call those three Gospels the synoptic Gospels. That word synoptic, it sounds like synopsis, but it talks about the, the correspondence between the two. And it's a popular thing in the history of Bible studies to try to create a, it's called a harmony of the Gospels. Calvin did this, for example. If you try to read Calvin's commentary on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's a little frustrating because he blends them all together. He puts them all kind of together, not in their usual order, but in the order that fits kind of the correspondences best. And so sometimes you find yourself jumping around. But if you observe those similarities, some interesting things emerge. There's a moment in each of those three Gospels that you might think of as a turning point, kind of a pivot point in the story, and and after this, everything changes. Before this moment, everything is kind of building up to this question of of Jesus' identity, but after this moment, everything is really focused on Jesus' work. And the moment will be one that is familiar to you. It's the moment that is recorded in Matthew 16 and Mark 8 and Luke 9, where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Remember the scene? He wants to know who do the people say that I am, and he gets some names and prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. He confesses that you are the Messiah. Everything changes after that. In all three of the synoptic Gospels, the focus shifts from, from who Jesus is, whether or not he's the Messiah, to what the Messiah has to do. So Jesus, at this moment, starts talking about his suffering, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must die as an atonement for sin. He must be the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would be. But everything before that leading up to it is really more focused on this question of who this guy is. Like, is he who he claims to be? Who does he claim to be? And in Matthew's Gospel, as we saw last week, that question is actually asked from the very beginning. Not just asked, but answered in a number of different ways. Last time we saw the way that Matthew answers the question, who is Jesus, by showing us where Jesus came from. And today, in the last half of chapter 1, he answers the question, who is Jesus, by telling us what Jesus is called, by giving us his name and what it means. The name of the Messiah reveals his identity. The name of the Messiah reveals his identity, but it does more than that. It reveals his mission, too. And so in our passage this morning, we get the identity of the Messiah, but also the mission of the Messiah. Before we ask those questions, I want to spend a little time with Joseph, because here we get a glimpse into the the birth narrative of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. If people were to ask you, are you familiar with the story in the Bible about Joseph's dream, you'd probably think of, of the original Joseph, Joseph from the Old Testament, who was a great dreamer and interpreter of dreams, a gift that got him into some trouble, found himself a slave in Egypt, but he rose from being a slave to becoming a ruler of Egypt. That's not the Joseph we're talking about here. We're talking about a much more humble Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, and yet in his son, a very similar kind of thing, from humiliation to exaltation, is about to happen. And God speaks to him through dreams. Now, in Mary's case, as you see in Luke's gospel, Mary is spoken to through direct angelic revelations. Gabriel comes to Mary and speaks to her. Joseph gets it one step removed. but He gets it in the form of dreams. He has a dream as he is considering his situation. He's been betrothed to Mary, which is a a, a much more definite bond than engagement is in our culture. Like, to be betrothed is essentially to be husband and wife. You just haven't yet come together and consummated the relationship. And to discover that your betrothed is with child, that's a betrayal. That's adulterous. And so Joseph considers his problem, and as he's considering his problem, he has this dream that gives him an answer that's very unexpected. Like the original Joseph, this Joseph too will go to Egypt and come out of Egypt. We'll see later. But here, the point is just this, where we're familiar with this story mainly through the eyes of Mary. Here, Matthew gives it to us just as he gave the genealogy through the eyes of Joseph. We don't spend a lot of time with Joseph after this, after the birth narratives. He drops out of the the story, and we're not sure exactly why. Presumably, he died early. But the time that we spend with him is interesting. The angel appears to him 
and addresses him as if he were some great person. Like Joseph, son of David, giving him this title that the genealogy gives to Jesus. He does it, of course, because Joseph is in that line of succession. He is a son of David. He's from that royal family, despite the humble circumstances of his life. In that moment, I think there's even a flavor of uh, Book of Judges. Remember the story of Gideon? An angel comes to Gideon to commission him for his mission and refers to him as a mighty man of valor. And the irony of it is that as he's being referred to this way, he's actually cowering, intimidated by the presence of the angel. So that the, the act of naming is not just like addressing him, but it's sort of declaring who he will be. Like the angel is sort of summoning him to his identity. And here, in a way, I, I think there's something similar going on. Joseph is being summoned, is being reminded of who he is. You are a son of David. In the, the, the context where he's in, in the turmoil, the inner conflict that he's experiencing, he's being reminded of where he comes from and then being told this son is the one who was promised. Have no fear. Do not be fearful. So he isn't. So he goes forward. He marries Mary. And he is the human father in the household of Jesus Christ. If you think about that, if you're looking for models of manhood in Scripture, I think you could do a lot worse than to reflect on the example of Joseph. We don't get much of it, but what we get is really good. And it would benefit us to pay more attention, I think, to this man and his example. Joseph is a just man. He's a righteous man. He's a godly man. He is seeking in his life to embody the faith that he professes. Even when he is betrayed by the woman he loves, even when he believes that she has sinned against him, his reaction is one of compassion. He could have stood on his rights. He could have demanded justice. He could have exposed her to ridicule, but that's not what he does. He wants to handle things quietly. He doesn't want to put her to shame, even though he believes she is guilty. He treats her with compassion and with care. It's interesting, he has resolved to do this. He has resolved to put her away quietly, to give her that bill of divorce that Jesus will refer to later. He's resolved to do this, but he hasn't done it. He's made the decision, and yet he's still contemplating, considering this stuff. He's going over. He's troubled by it already. He's been betrayed. He's decided to handle it graciously and just to move on, but he hasn't acted on that. He still has this this indecision inside of him. Which suggests to me not only a righteous compassion, but a spiritual sensitivity on the part of this man. But he's a man who isn't content to merely see the rules and do the right thing. But he must do it with compassion. He must act or speak the truth in love. And even so, he possesses a sensitivity that when he's in the right still prevents him from acting because he discerns something about this doesn't add up. Something about this still makes me reluctant to end this thing. And so he has the dream, 
And this is a dream that comes and appears to come to fertile soil. Because when he wakes up after the dream, he doesn't go into like a Hamlet thing. Right? Hamlet sees the ghost of his father. The ghost of his father says, that's the guy who killed me, and I should get vengeance. And if Hamlet had been more of a Joseph, Hamlet would be a really short play. But instead, it's dragged out because instead of acting, he thinks, and he ponders, and he goes back and forth, but not Joseph. Joseph, who's, who's in this, this, this difficult situation when he receives guidance from God, he just acts on it. He just does it. Even though I imagine that acting on it exposed him to a little bit of ridicule and a little bit of shame. Because by acting on it, he would have been doing something that a lot of righteous, just people would have said, Joseph, you're making a big mistake here. You had a dream? Sorry, what? But he acts upon it. He is a man, not only of sensitivity, but also of action. He receives direction from God and he puts it into action. Even when it means upending his life, even when it means potentially losing the respect of others who will judge these actions wrongly. Still, he does it. As I say, as we look for role models, as we look for those to emulate, I think Joseph is a great example for us to follow, to have his compassion and sensitivity, and yet his determination to act, even at cost to himself, at the leading of the Holy Spirit. But of course, the reason why Matthew shares this story isn't that he's concerned we don't have good role models. The reason he shares the story is he's unfolding for us the the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And in this section of Jesus' birth, the primary concern, interestingly, is not the details of the nativity. It is the naming of the child that matters most. It's a concise description of events, but it focuses specifically on two names. We see in verse 21, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus. But then Matthew interjects, and Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And the prophet here is Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Not 4, as it says in the order of worship, but 14 is where you will find these words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, as you compare those two passages, it may not stand out to you at first. This is a little subtle. But as you compare what the angel says and compare what Isaiah says, do you notice that they're not actually the same name? Like if you say them out loud, Jesus and Emmanuel, they sound very different. They're they're not the same. So it's kind of strange to have an angel say, you will call his name Jesus, and then for Matthew to say, oh, it's because of the prophet of Isaiah who said you will call him Emmanuel. You're like, Matthew, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure people are going to have questions about this. This almost seems like, you know, a contradiction. So what's going on here? We've got to dig into the names and understand the meaning of the names, and when we do that, we'll see why they go together. The naming of Jesus reveals the true identity of the Messiah. So the name Jesus, you know this already, but Jesus is just the Hellenized form of a Hebrew name, Yeshua or Joshua. 
Right? There was a famous guy named Joshua in the Old Testament. There was a whole book about his acts. Joshua, the conqueror of the promised land. The guy who led the people out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. That Joshua. In the email that I sent to you yesterday, I included a link to some past sermons where you can kind of go deeper on some of this stuff. So back in 2018... You can remember back that long, uh, at the beginning of our sermon series in the book of Joshua, the very first sermon there was called, He Will Save His People. It's all about this connection between the name of Joshua the Conqueror and Jesus the Conqueror of Sin. Because just as Joshua led his people into the land of promise, Jesus leads his people into the land of promise. So it makes sense. Give him, Give him... A good Old Testament conqueror name. Call him Yeshua. Call him Joshua. But that's not really the significance of the name. It's not the correspondence to the the person Joshua, but rather the meaning of the name that that person had. Because that, that name means literally Yah saves. Yahweh saves. The Lord God saves. That's what the name means. So the fact that there was a guy named Joshua who saved the people and brought them into the land of promise, well, he was just living up to his name. He'd been given a good name that had kind of charted out who he was and his mission. But here, the Messiah, the Son, who was promised, enters into the world. And we're told, you will name him Yahweh saves. You will name him God saves because he will save his people from their sins. This wasn't an unusual name. There were other Jesuses in the first century. It was a common name that people liked to give their sons because it was a name that reminded them that God had promised a Savior, a Messiah, who was going to come and deliver the people. Now they thought he would be a political Messiah, a political king, but when parents gave their son the name Jesus, they were thinking, hey, you know, maybe he's the one. Or maybe not, but at least there will be one, and it'd be cool to name our kid after him. You know, the way a lot of kids are named after famous people who did great things. So the Savior, the Messiah, bears the name Jesus, God saves. And of course, the name Emmanuel, Matthew translates for us. He says this name means God with us. God with us. Now, when Matthew introduces this question, He does it with a specific set of words. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Uh, Theologians call that Matthew's fulfillment formula. When Matthew is going to bring in one of these Old Testament quotes, he will always repeat those same words before it by way of introduction. He does it over and over and over again. Now, he also alludes to a lot of other Old Testament stuff without actually uh, highlighting it this way. But when he does this, you can imagine it literally highlighted. Like he took out his yellow pen and kind of ran over the words so that they really stand out for us. He's showing us how Jesus today connects to Old Testament prophecy. So clearly, he's the one. Clearly, it goes together. And in an interesting way, because when Matthew uses these words, sometimes The prophecy that he is alluding to is predictive prophecy, the way we usually think of prophecy. So it could be uh, God says, hey, one day I'm going to send a son. 
And that never happens. And then in the New Testament, we say, ah, this happened to fulfill the Word of God. We said, I'm going to do this one day, and now he's done it. But sometimes when Matthew quotes a prophecy, it's not apparent if you go back that that's what that was. Because sometimes he will allude to things that happened in history and say this was to fulfill that event. You're like, well, wait a second. What, is, what does fulfillment mean if it's not just paying off like promises, but also like recreating events of the past? Like taking the physical and transforming it into a spiritual reality and calling that fulfillment. If you start reflecting on that, you start realizing like everything that's happened, like not just the, the promises and the prophecies, but the history was God revealing himself and revealing what he would do. So that Matthew can look back on those things and, and, and claim them and reveal the ways in which they prophesied Christ to come. In Isaiah 7.14, this was a prophecy originally given to King Ahaz, who was told to ask for a sign from God because he was turning to other gods in his confusion, in his, his despair. He thought God would not save. And the prophet Isaiah essentially confronts him about this. As God says, come to me, ask me, I will send a sign, I will send this son, Emmanuel, God with us. Again, if you want to dig in more, in uh, 2016, did a sermon in Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14, called Ask for a Sign. And the link is in the email yesterday. But you see kind of the, the connection here. But again, there's, there's a context of the promise of a son who is to come, and then a word spoken about him, naming him. And the name suggests the presence of God, not only the presence of God, but God doing something. So when you think about Jesus, God saves, Yahweh saves. When you think about Emmanuel, God with us, you recognize in the name Emmanuel, obviously, an expression of the incarnation of Christ, that he took on flesh and dwelled among us. He became one of us, God with us. But when you see it here in this context, you realize there's more to it than that. It's not just God with us, but God with us to save us. Not just the identity of the Messiah, but also the mission of the Messiah is hinted at in his very name. God with us associates the child who is born with God himself. There's an assertion there of divinity. and The way that God is with us is through the person of this child, Jesus. You might think of that as the how of salvation. How was salvation accomplished? By God taking on flesh and dwelling among us, as it says in John chapter 1. This is what God did in order to save. The name Jesus says something very similar. Yahweh saves. Again, equating the child with God himself. Who is it that's saving? God is saving. How is he saving? by becoming one of us and working salvation for us in the person of this child who is receiving these names like an inheritance to announce not only who he is, but also what he's here to do. The naming of Jesus reveals not only the identity of the Messiah, but also the true mission of the Messiah. And this is important. I want you to remember that every time you think of him and every time you think of his name, you're thinking not just of his identity, but of his mission, 
Because his mission is the thing that people kick up so much dust to try to conceal and obscure. People say, Jesus didn't just come here to, to, to save people. Jesus came here to set a good moral example. Jesus was a great teacher. Like If you just make it about like, like getting saved, you're leaving out so much of what Jesus came here to do. Not just about personal salvation. It's about teaching us a better way to live. About teaching us what it means to be truly human. To be good people. There's no need to just keep thumping your Bible over sin and salvation. Jesus is so much more than that. Or so they say. Pious people who believe in Jesus, but believe that Jesus isn't the person who embodied the names that he was given at his birth, because the names he was given at his birth mean what they mean. The name Jesus doesn't mean be nice. The name Emmanuel doesn't mean do better. Jesus means God saves. Emmanuel means God with us. He came to do what his name suggests. He came, as the angel says, to save his people from their sins. And in that sentence, we have the mission of the Messiah. Why Jesus came. He came to save his people from their sins. I want you to note the particularism of these words. The angel doesn't say to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because he will offer salvation to everyone equally and hopefully some of them will accept it. When we describe the mission of Jesus, we often describe it in those terms with that sense of uncertainty about whether or not he will actually fulfill his mission. The angel doesn't do that. What he says is much more definite than that Like the great Jedi Master Yoda, the angel seems to agree there is no try, only do. Jesus will not try to save his people from their sin. Jesus will not try to be the savior of the world. Jesus will save his people from their sin. Jesus is the savior of the world. Cling to the words of the angel. You ask yourself what Jesus came to do. Now in contrast... In other parts of Scripture, you find uh, passages that suggest not particularism, but universalism. Not just saving his people, but saving the whole world. Which often leads us to think we've got to choose either or. Which one is it? Did Jesus come to save his people or did Jesus come to save the world? If you're curious about that question, today's big question episode is devoted to that very question Suffice to say, for now, there's no choice to make. It's not an either-or. That's a false dichotomy. Both of those things are true. Jesus actually saves his people, and he is actually Savior of the world. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus saves each and every individual. It says that just as God saved the world from destruction by saving Noah's family, so in a larger sense, Jesus saves the world by saving his people. The question is, and this part is so obvious that it's impossible to miss, what has he come to save them from? 
So again, don't get caught up on the particularism thing. That's important. That's there. But I want you to see the rest of the mission. He has come to save his people from what exactly? From their sin. The word behold. You get this all the time in the Old Testament. Behold, behold. It's a translation of the Greek word idu, and it means something like look at this. So when people say behold, it's like a phrase intended to draw attention to whatever's going to happen. So behold, this is going to happen. Take a look at this. This is going to happen. And at this moment, I want to add a little idu, a little behold into that statement. Because the naming of Jesus reveals our true condition. And you ask yourself, why do we need to be saved in the first place? What crisis was so bad that the only way to fix it was for God to become human, live perfectly, and die for us? Well, behold, there's an answer to that question in the angel's words. I want you to hear them this way. He will save his people, and behold. He will save his people, and hey, look at this, from their sins. This is what he's come to save them from, their sins. So from the very beginning, it was obvious, it was clear that the battleground that the Messiah would fight on was a spiritual, not a physical battleground. He didn't say he will save his people from the Romans. That he will save his people from obscurity. That he will save his people from dying out or succumbing to the culture and losing their own unique identity. He will save his people from their sins. The struggle that Jesus waged in the flesh was always a spiritual one. And the victory that Jesus won in the flesh was a spiritual victory. You cannot have the spiritual without the physical, yes. But at the same time, we must always live in the physical with our eyes set on the spiritual. We are embodied souls. Our eyes must be fixed on the spiritual reality. So as we think about the mission of Christ and the work of Christ, and we think about how all-encompassing it is, and it is, it extends far beyond the question of personal salvation. And yet, and yet, the reason he came is to save his people from their sins. So whatever else we add into our understanding of his mission, never forget that the core of that mission is our salvation. Of course, what that means is our sins have catastrophic consequences. They're not just physical ones, but spiritual ones. We're quick to condemn the sins that have the the obvious physical consequences. When you do something, the Bible condemns, and it also has the sort of added effect of hurting people in the physical world. It's easy to see that was wrong and to bring yourself to ask forgiveness. But sins that seem to do no harm... Sins that don't seem to change or or affect or hurt the physical world, harder sometimes to take those kinds of sins seriously. So we find ourselves focused on maybe the big sins, which are typically the ones other people have a problem with, while we excuse, perhaps let's say like the invisible sins, the inward sins, as if they're not that bad, because hey, nobody's perfect. And yet all of these sins necessitate Christ's sacrifice. How can a sin do no harm if it requires the Son of God to go to the cross for it? As we think about the problem, 
I don't want us to become discouraged, but I do want us to have like a true sense of, of the problem of our sin. It's a great difficulty for us. It's something we cannot overcome, except in Jesus. Except if God is with us. Except if God saves us. There is no hope for us unless God is with us. There is no hope for us unless God saves us. And Jesus means God saves. And Emmanuel means God is with us. They reach the end of the first chapter of Matthew, and as it concludes, I hope that you can see in these words a kind of uh, music of suspenseful hope. Like something is coming. Something new is on the scene. Something is about to happen. But in the suspense, it's impossible not to give it away, not to, to, to already hint at what is about to come. In the genealogy and now in the birth narrative, we're already talking about salvation. We're already talking about what he will do. Into the, the, the darkness that this infant was born in, he brings the light. And if you know his name, then you know why he's here. And you know what he's come to do. And if you know that, then call upon his name and be saved. Because Jesus saves. God is with us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.